Now hear the word of the Lord from Luke 6, 12 through 19. If you have a worship center Bible, the text can be found on page 862. This is Luke 6, 12 through 19. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James, and John, Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and the James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for the power came out from him and healed them all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. Great to be with you today. I wanted to say a word of thanks uh, just at the outset. Uh, Many of you have been praying uh, for us, uh, dating back to June and General Assembly, and I want to say thank you for those prayers. Um, At General Assembly in Dallas, uh, it was my great privilege this year to preach, and um, a lot of you folks were sending so much encouragement, and God gave me great liberty and boldness and joy in sharing the word that night, and it was fun to see thousands of people filling the aisles and all coming together in prayer for the next generation in what was an otherwise sometimes sometimes, uh, troubled uh, assembly. (laughs) It was good to see everybody uh, flowing together in a a great uh, moment. And a move of prayers, God's Spirit visited with us in that time. And then the ministry in London was a lot of fun. And part of the blast of that not only was preaching in London and doing several meetings there, but also hanging with uh, just the best kids from student ministries. Those guys were just amazing. And showing them around my favorite city. And Rosemary Miller sent, those of you who know Rosemary, sent me an email just saying thanks for sending such a great group of kids over this year to do such a great mission work. They were fantastic. So that was a great joy as well. So uh, it's a great privilege to be with you this morning and to start with you a brief series on community, on the shared life of the Christian community. So why should we be doing this? So we'll, we'll get back to Mark in a few weeks, but we want to spend these um, next several Sundays looking at this issue together. Why should we uh, be doing this? Well, of course, at one level, talking about community is deeply biblical. Uh, God, after all, is himself a community of persons, and in redeeming us, he calls us not only to himself, but he reconciles us with each other, and uh, the whole Bible is, in fact, written to and given to a community of persons, not isolated individuals somewhere. So our entire faith is deeply, deeply communal. And that's contrary to um, so much of the prevailing spirit of our age, which is vital for us in terms of the current emphasis. Because a second reason why we need to be emphasizing this is that our world right now needs a witness to the love of Christian people. Uh, Jesus said, this is how the world will know you're my disciples, by the way you love one another. 
And one of the things that is happening in our culture, and it's being noted by a great many social commentators, is the increasing level of fragmentation and isolation, which is being experienced by so many people. And it is exactly this, whether it's the demolition of marriages or the isolation of people that leaves them disconnected from actual friendships, that is leading to so much violence and hatred and rage, which we see in social media and in the streets of our cities. You and I are called to be bearing witness to the love of God in Jesus Christ in the way that we respond to our neighbors and the way in which we dwell together, how good and pleasant it is where brothers dwell together in unity. But isolation is, in fact, something which is pervasive even within the Christian community. It's part of the spirit of the age which is trying to reshape us. I mentioned this back in June. Let me mention it again. When I talked to our student leaders and said, give me the kind of top pathology that you're seeing at work in the souls of the young people, high school students, middle school students that you're working with, every single one of them immediately said isolation, isolation. They're being driven into places of aloneness where despair can take hold of their hearts. And that's one of the biggest things we have to combat. They've never been, here was their quote, they've never been more virtually connected, never more relationally degraded. And that speaks to where our entire society is. New York Times columnist David Brooks has come out with a brilliant book called The Second Mountain, which I commend to you all. And in it, he relates his own experience of brokenness and his life falling apart and the place that led him to in terms of personal transformation. I'll just read you a couple of lines. The wages of sin are sin. My faults accumulated and then crashed down on me in 2013. My marriage of 27 years ended. I found myself intellectually and politically unattached. I was unplanted, lonely, humiliated, and scattered. And in that place, in that place of brokenness, Brooks began to meet God because God is a God who meets us in our broken places. He's the one who steps into the calamity that happens in our, our lives because of sin. And he meets us in his mercy and he began to heal him. And one of the acts of healing that began to flow into his life as he began to meet God, was him reconnecting with other people. As he began to discover the gift and the grace of authentic community and the poison that is in our atmosphere, it's the prevailing spirit of our age of radical individualism. Brooks goes on to write, I no longer believe that the cultural and moral structures of our society are fine, that All we have to do is fix ourselves individually. I have become, interesting word here, radicalized. I now think the rampant individualism of our current culture is a catastrophe. The emphasis on self, individual success, self-fulfillment, individual freedom, self-actualization is a catastrophe. I now think that living a good life requires a much vaster transformation. It's not enough to just work on your own weaknesses. The whole cultural paradigm has to shift from the mindset of hyper-individualism to the relational mindset of what Brooks calls 
the second mountain. And then he goes on to unpack that. When are social commentators, people who are writing for the Atlantic and the New Yorker and National Review, who are writing for the New York Times are noting that one of the greatest problems in our cultural, our culture today is loneliness, isolation, the breakdown of family, the breakdown of communities in places like our major cities where people are no longer held together by traditional bonds that once kept them in places of affection and actual practical care for each other. When that's being noted by our social commentators and they're saying that's part of the pathology in our streets, then that's an opportunity for you and I as Christians to ask, are we being shaped by that same spirit or will we, by the Holy Spirit, step into those places with a testimony to something different? Now, I don't want to call you to simple community. Mere community is not really what I'm after. That's not really the issue. You see, what we have here in Luke chapter 6 is something dramatically different than mere community. Luke chapter 6, verse 12, begins with Jesus up on the mountain. Watch this. He's up on the mountain. And there he is in communion. It says he spent the whole night in prayer with his Father. So there's the life of the Holy Trinity. There's Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's on him. He's in communion with the Father. He's there on top of the mountain. But then, out of the communion that he has with the Father, out of that fellowship of the Holy Trinity, out of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus comes down halfway on the mountain. In the middle part of the mountain, he stands there with his disciples and he calls 12 of them into a place of new commitment. I want you to be with me. I want to train you. I want to shape your life. He brings them into a community, a committed relationship with him. And then out of that middle part of the mountain, they step down into the valley. They go to the bottom part of the mountain where all the brokenness is. And there it says power was flowing out of him and healing people and ministering to people and restoring people. There was communion with God. There was community with disciples. There was ministry to the broken. It's that order that we need to be aware of. The communion with God, the community we have with each other, the ministry of life into the world that's broken. That's how Jesus did it. And can I tell you this morning, if anyone did not need community, It was Jesus, but he deliberately chose it. He chose to call these men to be with him. These men who were themselves immature, who were not spotless, who were very different from each other, who were very broken themselves, one of whom would end up possessed by Satan. How many of you would like that guy in your small group? Go, yeah, I, that guy is in my small group. Come to think of it, you're saying. <laughs> you see, community is a basic human reality. It's there in us. We need it. We know we need it because we're made in God's image. And God, as I said, is himself a community. The very first pages of the Bible reveal this to us. When you open the Bible, you find God saying, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. God doesn't say, I will make man in my image. God says, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. God is himself a community of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The New Testament unpacks the persons in that community. But 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the name that is on us at our baptism, the name that shapes the rest of our life. God is himself a society of persons. He's one true living God, but three persons. And, and I'm not going to spend the whole morning trying to unpack the mystery of the Trinity. That would, that would be a, a uh, well, that'd be a fruitless exercise. But I just want to say that God, out of the community of his persons, establishes humanity. So it's no surprise that within us as people is the stamp of community. This is why solitary confinement is a form of punishment. It's why we know we need one another. We need to look and see one another and to dwell together. It's why we long for someone who will draw near to us and know us as we really are and love us as we really are. And we cannot stand being alone. It's like that great scene in Castaway with Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks is alone on the island Those of you who've seen the movie, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't, it's only a 20-year-old movie, so I don't know what you're doing. But what does he do? His bloodied hand ends up putting a print on a, a volleyball, and so he kind of forms that into a face, and of course he names the volleyball Wilson. And one of the most powerful scenes in movie history is just before he's rescued, he's out there floating on a raft, and the volleyball, which he has kept with him, he's had conversations with Wilson over the whole time that he's on the island, the ball gets loose and begins to drift off in the ocean. And Hanks is crying out, Wilson! Wilson! He's trying to rescue the volleyball. Have you ever seen anyone's heart break over a volleyball? No. But he did there. Why? Because... He needed that face. Without that face, his aloneness was overwhelming. You see, we were made for one another. But that means that a lot of us can say this morning, well, you know, pastor, that's great, but I've got community. I mean, you know, I'm on a football team. I hang out with some soccer moms. Um, I have community with the guys that I work with. I do not negate or denigrate any of that. I want to say amen to that. We all have multiple kinds of communities that we're in. But that is not the kind of community I'm talking about. No, I'm talking about something different. I'm talking about what is a uniquely and distinctive Christian community. The Christian community is a gift of God's grace to our lives that's different. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his brilliant book, Life Together, which I commend to you, notes that it is easily forgotten that the community of Christian brothers is a gift of grace. Let the Christian who has the privilege of living in community with other Christians, praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community. And Bonhoeffer goes on to note that the thing which is distinctive about living in Christian community is two things. It's truth and love. The truth of the gospel And the love of God. Those are the two things which are the hallmarks, not just of community in a general sense, because a group of Buddhists might have community. A group of Muslims might have community. What is unique 
about Christian community. A group of people who are neighbors, who care for each other, as they should have community, but it might not be a distinctly and unique Christian community. What is it that makes a Christian community? It's the, it's the truth of the gospel and the love of God. You see, we need to preach the gospel to each other. And we need to dwell in the love of God. And the world, with its communities, will often have love which extends only to the boundary of the truth. And says, don't talk to me about your truth. And some of us have love which says, I don't want to lose that person, so I'll compromise the truth. But where love and truth walk together, that's where Christian community exists. You see, that's what Jesus called the apostles to. You see, if we, if we want, if we just talk about the communities that we fashion, here's what you find out. It turns out the communities we make look just like us. We look, we build communities of people that look like us. They come from the same economic class, maybe the same race. We come from the same kind of jobs. They kind of look like us, so we have something to relate to. But what does the love of God do with somebody who isn't like us? You see, what Jesus did, if you look at that list of names that we just read through there in Luke chapter 6, there's there's brothers, there's people like Peter and Andrew, James and John. They're brothers, kind of from the same family. But then there are other people like Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. Zealot doesn't mean he was a really excited guy. Zealot was a technical term for a political action group that was bent on killing tax collectors. Jesus took a tax collector and a zealot and said, you guys form a small group together. (laughs) They weren't alike. They hated each other. And Jesus brought them together because the gospel... And the love of God does that. So here's what I've done. I've ventured a definition of Christian community. I want to share it with you this morning. Here it is. Say a couple things about it. What is a Christian community? Christian community, see, is different. A Christian community, would you read it with me? A committed, compassionate sharing of life and truth in which we grow in Christ together and give Christ to others. That's my ventured definition of Christian community. What does it mean? Let me give you two qualities of the heart, committed and compassionate. Most communities are casual. Hey, you know, we'll get together and we'll stay together as long as we agree. But if we don't don't get along that well, forget it. But Christian community is committed. What's commitment? Commitment is when they close the, the, the door on the airplane. <laughs> I like the front row. I like the front row of my Southwest flight, a little extra leg room, but I'm sitting there and when they close that door and turn the handle, you are committed, baby. You're in. And you're in with all those people. And, and you, you can be afraid. You can hold hands with the person sitting next to you, uh, uh, if you know them. And, uh, but you know what? You're in. What is commitment? Commitment is what the apostles had. 
They forsook everything to be with Jesus. They left the nets behind. They left everything behind. They committed to each other. That's what it is. And why do we think that Jesus will ask less of our generation than he asks of them? Brooks, in his book, says that a commitment is making a promise without expecting a reward. That when you fall in love with someone and you make the commitment to be with them, you're making that commitment for the moment that the love seems to run out. When the romance isn't there, when times are hard, that's what the commitment is about. But we live in a commitment-averse culture. But that second quality is what draws us towards it. You see, compassion, a passion, a love is what creates commitment. Suppose you want to be a great musician, whether vocally or instrumentally. You want to be a great athlete. You want to exceed, perhaps, in a particular area of medicine. Whatever it is that you want to achieve, you're going to have to be committed to it, and that means you will say no to things. You will not be going, I'm free, I'm free. No, you'll be going, I'm committed. Freedom, in this sense, is overrated. You and I are called to say no to certain things. That's what happens in a marriage vow. I'm up there leading the vows, and and part of the vow is, and forsaking all others, I will cleave only unto you. Well, what what if the vow was, and forsaking most others, I'll more or less cleave to you. My mom was at a wedding. My late mom was at a wedding. She told me this story, and the vows were, I promise to be with you for as long as our love shall last. My mom said, I should have given them paper plates as a wedding present. (laughs) But you see, when the heart, compassion is there, when that's captured, then what happens is compassion takes you to commitment. That's That's what happened in the heart of God. He saw our destitution. He saw the wreckage we had made. And it took him to the cross. God, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? So that as one of us, he could die in our place. Christ gave his life on the cross and he died alone. So that we could have communion with the Father. And dwell in community with each other. But then there's two demands of the community, a sharing of life and truth. Life. We share life together. It's not just about meeting together. I'm not telling you to go to more meetings. I'm telling you this. The Holy Spirit is going to engage us in each other's lives in deeper ways. Think about all the one another's in the New Testament. Love one another. Build up one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Greet one another. Serve one another. Wait on one another. Wash each other's feet. Ye. greet one another with a holy kiss. That's a good one, isn't it? Bear one another's burdens. Speak truth to one another. Sing with one another. Teach one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Be at peace with one another. Stir up one another. Confess your sins to one another. Every Protestant's favorite thing to do. Be hospitable to one another. How many of those things can you do sitting behind somebody's head on a Sunday morning? Not many. It actually means that outside of Sunday morning, there's a dwelling together that all of us are called to. And in that dwelling together is a speaking of truth to each other. You see, this is the distinctive of the Christian community. When we meet together, when we gather together, when we walk together, when we live together, we're living together 
around the word of God, around the truth of the gospel. Jesus comes out of that communion with the Father and he gathers the apostles and he instructs them in the scriptures. He gives them his word and then they go into the world to share his love with others. And that leads to the expectations. Two expectations of this community. Here's the first one. You will grow together. God has your maturity more in view than your happiness. God wants us to grow up. Gathered worship is full of prayer and the word and the sacraments, the ordinary means of grace. But the ordinary means of grace are not confined to just Sunday morning. As you read through the New Testament, you'll see the Christians met in smaller settings too, and they shared the word with each other, and they prayed together, and they broke bread together. And that's because we need this face-to-face relationship. And some of us aren't comfortable with that. We prefer our anonymity. We prefer our isolation. Some of you are going, I'm an introvert. Don't bother me with community. That's why I'm sitting back here in the dark in the corner. Some of us are more natural at it. We're kind of gregarious. We like to be with other people. We find energy coming to us from other people. We dig it. And some of us just distinctions in gender sometimes. We, we kind of are more, kind of more with each other. I mean, I mean, I know that for when a lot of ladies get together and they're sitting around a table, if one gets up and says, I'm going to the restroom, somebody will go, I'll go with you. I've, but at our pastor's lunch, we have lunch together every week on a Wednesday. I've, I've never gotten up, so I'm going to the restroom, and Casey's never said, I'll go with you. <laughs> that would be weird. I mean, if Ken said, I'll go with you, I'd go sit down. <laughs> going with me. You see, you see, friends, this face-to-face is part of who God is. In John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That word with means face-to-face. The Son was face-to-face with the Father. The Father was face-to-face with the Spirit. And you and I are called to be face-to-face. And this means we will then finally, as we're growing, we will give Christ to others. Some of you are in Christian community. You already have it. Great. But here's my question for you. Does your community exist to give Jesus to other people? Or is it just an end in itself? You just look at each other. Because the face-to-face of the Father and the Son and the Spirit said, we want to bring more into this fellowship. I want a bride for the Son. And the Son said, I'll go die for the bride. And the Spirit said, I'll go gather the bride to you. Real community extends itself and brings others in. It doesn't say, no more. It extends itself. I'm going to tell you this. Anything we're doing as a church which doesn't exist to bring other people to Jesus, we ought to give it a Christian burial. Everything we do should have the hallmark of we're giving Jesus to people giving Jesus to our neighbors, giving Jesus to our city, giving Jesus to our world. And so in in saying, let's be called to community, that's because as people come here, and we've seen some growth in numbers here over the last couple of years, but the people who are coming can't just come on Sunday morning to a service. They have to come into relationship with a people. you got to be the kind of church that isn't a Teflon church that people slide off. you got to be a Velcro church that people stick to. And where that happens, 
where that stick to happens, people begin to grow up in Jesus. And other people start coming to Jesus. And so what I'm telling you is that God is calling us as a church right now to really sit here with open hands like this and say, we need to receive the gift of community. It's where we are in our renewal as a community of people. It's not something we've emphasized the last few years because we've had other things to work on. And we've gone to work on them, but now, now, it's time to work on this. A year, two years from now, we're going to be talking about planting other churches. But you have got to have a relational culture that is healthy to export to other places. So we're headed there. But right now, we have a unique opportunity to say to everyone who is here, we want everyone to discover the gift of one another. Because God wants to give you the gift of Holy Spirit-inspired community. Would you pray with me? Lord, you died on the cross to bring us into communion with the Father and to bring us into covenant relationship with each other. And we pray that you would help us to receive this gift of community through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Not a program that people just sign up for, but bonds of affection and joinings of heart that you are the author of so that loneliness and the power of isolation is broken. And the love of God and the truth of the gospel becomes the currency of our shared life so that we are always sharing your love and preaching the gospel to each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, brothers and sisters, and let's confess our our faith together. This question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism emphasizes community. Christian, what do you believe regarding Jesus? I believe that Jesus, the Son of God, through His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am always, will be a living member. Amen. Brothers and sisters, one of the ways that we express community is by sharing our goods with each other. And that's part of what an offering is about. It's not the totality of it, but it's part of it. And sharing our our goods with those who are in need. It's our custom on the first Sunday of the month to have two offerings. One, our just general offering, where we present our tithes and our offerings. And the second one, at the end of the service, an exit offering, which is for our deacon's fund. And it goes to care for those in our church who face need. You might be one of those people today. You have need. If you have need today, we want to see that met. Please speak to us so that we can help you with that. And so today, at the very end, there'll be that second offering. If God's blessed you with some extra and you want to contribute to that, please do. But now, let's share our possessions. Let's honor God in our giving. Would you pray with me? Lord, take these offerings now, these tithes and offerings, and 
Lord, teach us by them sacrificial, loving engagement with others and take these gifts and use them for the extension of your kingdom and the glory of your name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's be seated together and worship God in our giving.